Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am thrilled. I'm Stephen here. I'm thrilled to be with you all virtually in your eardrums today. I am joined by PMC Trilogy. PMC, what's up? Not much. I'm I'm re- recording live uh, just uh, a few a few meters from the ocean. So if, if you hear any soothing waves coming through, just imagine that is the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, PMC's on short time. A a classic New Jersey New Jersey weekend excursion to the beach. So as you as any loyal giant robot FM listener will know, the schedule has been shifting dramatically as the weeks go on. Um, as I say at the start of every recent episode, we are going to get to G Savior. PMC and I have watched it. We've recorded some of those G Savior episodes, um, but we had to push it back a little um, for scheduling reasons, and we pushed something up in its place, which is are a overview of the first core of Witch from Mercury. And I couldn't be more excited to dive back into this really impressive first season. And we're not alone. We are joined by Russell Latshaw and Thali Archis. What's up, you two? Hi. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm not near the Atlantic Ocean, um, but I do have, have uh, with me a very fine bottle of 20-year-aged um, Tawny Port from Porto on the Port- Portuguese coast. So that's been near the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. if that, it if has. that counts. I- uh, hello, uh, welcome. I'm. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back. Come on, we're not a gunbuster just yet, are we? Uh, no, glad to be back. Um, I don't have any witty things to say about the long weekend that we're recording on, but I'm glad that everybody's kind of taking it easy. All right. So right at the start, Thal and Russell, you both mentioned that Witch from Mercury was the catalyst for you to get into or get back into Gunpla. So tell us about that. As someone who every day inches closer to the precipice of jumping into Gunpla. I'm curious what drew you here or brought you back here. Yeah, yeah. I, the um, I It's been about 15, 16 years watching Gundam, and I had never really tried Gunpla. Um, I think, of course, living a life where you move around a lot makes it more difficult, and I've become a little bit more settled recently, and that's that's a big change. But also, The Witch from Mercury was a real reminder. I think it, it simply increased the number of people I would see mentioning that they'd been building things. And uh, after a while, you think, oh, maybe I should maybe I should try. Um, and of course, these days, it's very easy. In ways, it, I think it, it wasn't in, say, 2007. Uh, it's very easy to, to, to pull up a video that, that sort of explains, you know, here's, here's the basis of what you'll need. Um, so since October, the, the kind of Gumpler bug has, has bitten me pretty bad. I, I've built the... The high-grade Titans Mark II, um, uh, RX-78 II, and Hygog, uh, and the master-grade Unicorn. Uh, but then if I built one kit for every year that I've been following Gundam, I suppose that'd be 15 models. So I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling too, too restrained about, um, about my progress. And it's been, it's been really good fun. I've really been enjoying it. Uh, I love how each kit is like a flow state in a box. You can just really focus and, and do some particular physical task. Uh, and when I've built a suit, I find I have a much clearer and sharper sense of the original mechanical design. It changes the way you, you look at the animation, actually, I think. All of that said, rather embarrassingly, I haven't yet built any Witch from Mercury kits. Uh, so I've ordered the uh, Lefrith, and I've ordered Choo Choo's uh, Demi Trainer, 
and a friend of mine has ordered several aerial rebuilds and will sell me one of them um, when <laughs> when his arrive. Um, uh, and I've ordered the Lefrith Thorn because the suit being named after a medieval English letter is, is funny to me. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, I have various things on order, but which Mercury Gumpler is not easy to get hold of? Uh, some, some of those are uh, pre-orders. The, other, the ones which have been released are not easy to get hold of, which hopefully means that lots of people out there are, are buying them and, and, and building them. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I stand here as a, as a new, a newly minted Gumpler builder, but um, uh, a fake Wish from Mercury fan because I haven't actually built um, built uh, Wish from Mercury kit. Thal, do you have like a brick and mortar Gunpla store near you? Because where we are, PMC and I in Jersey, we have one pretty close to us that we could drive to. Probably more than one if I looked into it. Not that I'm aware of. Not near in English terms. I mean. Um, where I am is roughly an hour from London, and there are Gumpler shops in in okay. London. Um, and I guess in American terms, that's quite close. Um, but uh, within within this city, I don't I don't know of anywhere that um, that that sells Gumpler sort of physically that you can walk into and and, and make selections in. Gotcha. Now, when you're building Gunpla, do you get into like a flow state, a Zen state? Do you listen to music or podcasts, perhaps? Um, generally music uh, podcasts sometimes but I find even those can be distracting so I, uh, what I'll do is I'll set the timer so I don't even have to look at the clock and um, build for 25 minutes or, 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 or an hour and you can really you really find yourself uh, zooming in Russell how about you um, I too have finally been uh, hooked back in I bought quite a few kits way back when god um, well over 20 years ago now uh, during Gundam Wing's original airing, they they had model kits in Walmarts in several locations that I could just go to inside of a mall as a kid. There were commercials for those models. It's they're fight quite funny in retrospect. Yeah, it was it was a wild time where I would go to like a GameStop or something and just see one of those really nice uh, Wing Gundam customs, and then go to another place a couple doors down, and they would have a different selection. Uh, so I got really into that. Um, probably didn't use them in the way you were supposed to. I think I used them like action figures more than nicer things to pose and put up on a shelf. So they they got run down pretty quick. But I had good fun with them as a kid. Um, I don't think I built anything for, what, 13, 14 years now? Um, it's just been kind of a money thing and a space thing and just like, I, I can't get into this. I can't. I look at those two hundred dollar kits. And it's like, wow, that's cool, but oh, the pressure. But uh, you know, Witch from Mercury. There are some really cool robots in there, and it finally got me interested. I picked up uh, Choo Choo's Demi Trainer, um, and I guess Maddie found a little supply of aerials in their area and <laughs> sent me one. So I, I did, oh, sorry. I didn't know that. Uh... The aerial was so hard to come by until I saw Maddie's post about it. I, uh, I'm curious. <laughs> a lot of my students have side hustles. Most of them involve selling shoes and making much more money than I do. But I'm curious if any of them are hustling gun plicates, G-Witch gun plicates. I haven't cracked into them yet, so I am officially a Gunpla backlog guy now. I've avoided <laughs> it for so long. I, I can't let this get ahead of me. So uh, I, I just bought a mat. I have uh, some nippers. And I have a modeling knife and some gunpla markers in the mail, and I'm I'm looking forward to busting into those. And like that was saying, I'm I'm looking forward to that being kind of a quiet period where I just kind of unhook and just sort of focus in on it, get to really know the design of the suits, and just just be quiet with it. 
I'll probably do that here in the next couple of weeks. I wish the stuff came a little faster so I could actually uh, speak to the quality of them, but I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to how the Gunpla have changed in the last couple of decades. Because again, I haven't put my hands on a runner in, I don't know, whenever I built an Exio repair, probably like 2009 or something. So I'm sure they've come a long way since then. Yeah, yeah, and the the kits I've built in the last few months have ranged across the last couple of decades, and there's definitely, you can see things changing in the instructions and the um, the capabilities, of course, of the, the extraordinary plastic molding machines they, they use to make these things. Um, uh, and I would definitely say that they are friendlier and easier to, to make now. It's not it's not as dramatic as the difference between, say, the, the 80s and now, and you mm-hmm. go back to the 80s and you had to use glue and so on, but um the quality of life has improved and from photographs at least uh kits have been internationalizing and at least some parts of the instructions for the gwitch kits are in uh japanese and english um which is a I- interesting hint that, that there's a sort of sense that um not just in the english speaking world but you know just as a, as an international language that that opens these things up um of course um if you're used to gunpla um, you relatively quickly find like a an image file online where someone's laid out what all the symbols mean and and you know you, you kind of get your your workarounds for Japanese only instructions but um, it's an interesting interesting shift in uh, in in kid instructions if if that's right and uh, the photographs I've seen have been quite consistent and if if someone's building the area all the, the frith etc they'll they'll have bilingual instructions yeah I haven't looked at the instructions but uh, there's definitely a lot of English on the sides of the boxes I got my Choo Choo's Demi Trainer from Amazon Japan, which was for some reason um, behind an age restriction. I guess Choo Choo <laughs> wow. just hits that hard. But yeah, no, all, all of the descriptions for the character and stuff is in English. So that's that's really cool. I got, even if I don't plan on buying anything too soon, I got to make a trip to my local brick and mortar gun plus shop to see what they got. I interviewed the owner, I don't know, half a year ago, more than half a year ago. And he mentioned that the business was good. Uh, pandemic was a boost in regards to local Gunpla sales, which is interesting, I find. Russell, wouldn't it be great, talking about vibes, if you could play Death Stranding at the same time as you were building a kit? <laughs> I don't know why uh, I associate you now based on your Twitter post with Death Stranding. Like, you're my Death Stranding compatriot, so I had to mention at least once. I feel like I, I am becoming a Death Stranding guy, even though I haven't played it in, I don't know, two years or whenever it was released. I very much am still a Death Stranding guy. That's that's like enlightenment right there. You're just, you're walking along the wasteland, picking up boxes and just sticking on Gundam heads. That's that's an interesting image. If only we had forearms. <laughs> Speaking of forearms and perhaps obtuse control schemes, Russell, I saw on Twitter that you've been playing the first Armored Core I'm assuming in response to the Armored Core 6 Fires of Rubicon announcement. And since PMC is on the call, I am legally obligated to ask, how has the experience been? Like, have you been enjoying it? Um, I have. It was very much, yeah, response to Fires of Rubicon. I've been enjoying the FromSoft action RPGs as of late. And it's been in the back of my head that if they show off another Armored Core game, that is definitely worth a look, just in how I've been enjoying their... Uh, occasionally mean design senses but um yeah no that that was a really cool cg trailer Uh, i'm interested to dive in and so yeah i found out that because i guess the availability on these is pretty limited for the older ones but uh the original ps1 game is available if you can emulate it through a ps3 
So I've been playing that a little bit. Um, I'm terrible at it. So am I, don't worry. <laughs> I am exactly as good at it as a dad in the early 2000s picking up an Xbox controller for the first time in his life and trying to play Halo. Every time I get shot at, I'm either shooting the ground or completely empty sky. Boosting is still difficult, and I've fallen off a few cliffs in my time. Try meleeing when you're in the air, when you are soaring above the ground. Oh, interesting. I'll have to give that a run. But no, I am enjoying it. It is immediately recognizable as a FromSoft piece, even separated by, what are we, like 26 years now? I can immediately see the design sense that, uh, you know, everybody's loving an Elden Ring now, where it's just figure it out, go in. Uh, it's very, f there's an interesting facelessness to it. I saw PMC talking about this a couple months ago, how they just, you just don't see people in like any of the Armored Core games, I guess. You just never see them. And that's, that's really interesting to me. You got to play Project Phantasma then. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I should note that the, um, in Armored Core 1, you, you have to look very closely to see this, and you probably wouldn't notice if you were playing you know, on a, on a PlayStation in, in 1997, but there is uh, one grunt enemy that it does have like on its uh, the texturing an exposed cockpit. So that oh. is like one example of a, of a human face. Again, I use face very loosely because it's probably like two or three pixels. Um, and then in Project Phantasma, there is a cutscene where they have a little tiny man that walks out of a building and puts his hands up to surrender uh, during a cutscene, And it's like the last time you see a human until I think maybe a, like a, like an intro cutscene in, in either like last Raven or four or something. That that's really interesting to me because it's so immediately just on point with the capitalist dystopia stuff. There's just a bunch of companies and the emails you keep getting, try to like, skin different motives and stuff onto them, but they're all just faceless companies out to kill everybody and everything and just make a profit. <laughs> it's it's really neat. It's a really fun restriction to, to place on yourselves making making a, a series of games that we're just not going to depict <laughs> humans. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, it, it reminds me of the um, uh, being young and playing Deus Ex for the first time and and someone pointing out to me that the entire game takes takes place at night, and the you know your movements around the world are carefully timed. So the, all the all the game, everything is 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 at night. Um, which again, the game never says, but uh, is an interesting little, little restriction. Yeah, how that's neat. I I remain un unarmored cord, but but uh, I guess if I appear on enough of these podcasts, I'll 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 have to find some way of trying armored core at some point. But. Yeah, there's so many of them, and the FromSoft catalog is so deep that I have to repeat all, live on this podcast once again the wish for some sort of um, like a Mega Man Legacy anniversary type collection of of these games. And, and when I say that, when I say these games, I, I mean I'm talking about Armored Core, but I'm also talking about Kingsfield, Echo Knight, Eternal Ring, etc. You know, there's really uh, so many of them, and a lot of them are hard to get. I mean, Kuan is like a you know four hundred million dollar game to try and get a physical copy of that. The the survival horror game for PS2. So it would it would be great to see those. You, you don't have to dress them up at all. Just you know, just make it an easy to get collection. Uh, and and you know, I, I think uh, you know people will flock to it and, and get something out of it because you know as much as uh, you know, we, we talk once in a while, or, or Stephen I should say writes once in a while about auteurs, but uh, the house style from Soft has really been there right from the beginning. That is not, you know, that's not particularly a, a, a Miyazaki thing. You know, the, the director of uh, of Elden Ring and Armored Core Four 
That is just sort of how they've been living their lives since they decided maybe we should stop making business software and start making games, you know, back in the, the, the mid nineties. Yeah. The front, the four sickos customization that I'm used to (laughs) in like the souls games and stuff. Just, I immediately got hit with that when I opened up the shop, I finally have some money to where I can start changing out parts and getting an idea of how I want to play. Um, there, I haven't dug too deep yet, but there are like a bunch of parts that look like it just makes your life worse for, I don't know why, like, why are you putting your core on like a flatbed truck? Is there an advantage to that? So the, the style would be, if you were doing that is, uh, is literally you would be a tank that is like in a literal and, and like sort of, uh, you know, in terms of your play style sense that you are. You those treads will typically have higher values for both weight capacity and armor points, mm. and so you will be bringing more weapons to bear, and you would be able to outgun. You would win a damage race with anybody. Is the idea? Okay, that's that's I love that. Like I never get too creative with my builds in those games, but I love that they're there. I love being able to look up and see people just go wild with that stuff so i'm gonna have to look up those tank builds since steven brought it up i should mention just to make it explicit because this is like a little little bit of trivia that i didn't even know until i came back to the game to speed run it part of why steven mentioned uh using the blade while in the air is because there is actually a damage multiplier if you if you try to do this thing where you do like a hop and then laser blade an enemy you'll get some very specific animations when you do that if you're close enough to an enemy and that's actually because you're doing a special attack where you'll get a very substantial i mean laser blades already hit pretty hard if you're doing it this way you'll get a you know full-on like 2x 4x 8x you know depending on the animation you get damage multiplier this is important because uh in, I mean, for obviously it's just like cool and fun, but also uh, for speedrunning, you know, it, when you ha- when you're restricted in terms of what you can use, and you're able to fish that damage out. Much of the master of arena speedrun, which which in which there are many required arena fights, is built on the back of this mechanic. Uh, and even in the Armored Core One speedrun, in the Raven test, you know, the very first mission, you use that. That's the quickest DPS method you have on that starting that starting uh, armored core that you begin the game with. And that's also how I was able to beat armored core one without using the shop is mostly on the back of <laughs> airblading things. So it's uh, it's a good time. That's cool. Cause I, I also love the crazy ways that people break these from software games. I'm sure the game is totally different now, but in the early days of Elden ring where people were figuring out how to basically fly on like jump animations and stuff. That mm-hmm. was wild. Very good. Yeah. So that's that's great to see that they're building these games with these capabilities in place, maybe not intentionally, that people are just going wild with. The great thing about video games is when they have a lot of features because features are exploitable. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the thing that really makes them exciting. You know, regardless of whether the features are, are good or fun or bad or however you want to describe them, if there are features, they can be exploited and things can happen. I'm very much, as I've mentioned, I'm very bad at it. Um, it's the the lack of analog control is, I know people did it in 1997, but I cannot get my brain to roll back that far yet. Just a I'm quick turn. Just a quick turn. That's all I needed. <laughs> I'm going to keep throwing myself at it, but I'm very much looking forward to making that 26-year quality of life 
jump to where I can just turn around e a little easier, look at the sky a little easier, and like everything just moves a little better. I'm really looking forward to that for Armored Core Six. Yeah, FromSoft really got got uh, they they got dragged into that kicking and screaming because if you look at most of their early PlayStation Two games and you look in the manual. And he was like, what is the what are the left and right analog stick on a DualShock 2 do for this game? It'll usually just say nothing. It'll just say none. <laughs> uh, it's very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Armored Core. I also have to shout out, um, I'm loving the Shoji Kawamori designs in there. It scratches the pat labor itch that I just love. The industrialized robots that look like they were for construction, and then they started slapping laser cannons on them and stuff. That's That's delightful. His fashion was on point too. We un we you know through some Twitter deep diving, we unearthed some photos of Kawamori from the mid '90s wearing some bell bottoms ass jeans or pants. Very very stylish Kawamori. He's a, he's a sharp guy. Like even now, he's a little less ostentatious than like Tomino, but he's he's a sharp dresser. I'm looking forward to when Armored Core Six drops and we're all choked in the discourse. We're gonna drag the normies kicking and screaming into Mecha discourse. Yeah, this one's on off the back of all of those all the Souls games. This one's definitely going to be a big entry point for so many people. Just the trailer popping off, like everybody lost their minds. Like, all right, I got to pay attention to Armored Core now. Enough people I respect are just losing their minds at this. The announcement was made when my daughter wasn't sleeping through the night, so I wasn't next to my phone, as PMC noted in our Discord, because I woke up like in a daze only on two hours of sleep like where am i am i in a dream in my daughter the floor of my daughter's room next to a crib and then i check my phone and it's just a mess of messages uh <laughs> celebrations i was very happy though all right so we are going to jump into our discussion proper i wanted to at the start number one thank thal uh we had thal on for a prologue episode of our g witch coverage and thal you mentioned keeping track of some running themes, motifs, imagery, observations, of which for Mercury going forward. And I was like, great, Thal's going to do all this work for me. We, he, I love when people do prep work for me. So thank you so much, Thal. But you're, so you provide a lot of the structure of this episode. So I just want to make sure to give you thanks at the beginning. So listeners know who to blame when it's a <laughs> confusing mess. No, um, <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, I, I think um, just having a document to dump ideas and, and group lists and so on in is such a help, helpful, it helps you notice things. So that's always happy to do that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looks like the April premiere is, even though we don't have a date, it seems pretty locked in. So this is in anticipation of the April premiere of episode 13. So we're going to start off first with what did we predict in the first Radio Free Mercury episode? So if you remember, loyal listeners, we debuted Radio Free Mercury with the discussion of the prologue with Thal back in late September. So I'm glad we have him back on for this discussion so we can look back on some of the predictions we made. Maybe we'll be able to take some victory laps or maybe red-faced in shame will cover our faces. In that debut episode, we noted how Witch for Mercury would be a TV show airing in an early evening time slot and speculated that in some ways its audience might not be us, not necessarily pre-existing Gundam heads. I want to get a quick temperature check. How do you feel about Suleta Sundays? Do you, like, do you enjoy waking up Sunday morning uh, primed and ready for some new Gundam? Absolutely. Um, oh, man. I, I, would have to, I have to go to work on Sundays, but I work a split shift, so... I can come home and eat lunch and I have to not look at my phone because everybody I follow is just screaming about it, having a great time. 
Um, it seems like everybody or a lot of people are waking up really early to see it right as it airs, which is my time, like five in the morning or something. I can usually get it to it two in the afternoon or so. But even by then, it's the train is going. <laughs> so the um, Europeans are advantaged here because the episode airs sort of nine ish my time. Um, well, the episodes aired nine ish my time. So uh, you, you would, one would get up, um, get ready, uh, turn Twitter off when the episode <laughs> started airing, but relatively quickly, you know, it, it would be okay. Um, uh, you, you'd be able to watch it. Uh, so, so it, from a European point of view, we were better positioned to interface with with uh, a Japanese early evening time slot. And I think that that probably meant we we spent less time dodging dodging spoilers on on, on Twitter and so on. But of course, it, it did mean you had if you didn't want to um, have to do some of that spoiler dodging, you had to be ready to watch it on Sunday morning. So it, it would become a Sunday morning cartoon and 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 appointment television. Um, uh, but yeah, no, that worked really well for me, and and uh, I very much enjoyed having something to look forward to on a Sunday morning, uh, especially in the autumn when the, the nights are getting darker and, and you have less light in the morning and so on. I guess I must just be a person who chooses violence because I, I wake up in the morning and I just like, I absorb all what's going on. Cause usually again, as the other folks have said, the discourse is already happening. So I'm pretty sure I saw things like the choo-choo punch, maybe even, I don't know if I saw the blood right away. The, the, you know, the juice is loose um, uh, <laughs> at the end. I don't know if I saw that on Twitter before before logging on, but uh, I just certainly saw some things. I was probably clued into, uh, you know, the Alana obliteration stuff like that uh, beforehand. I don't know. I, I almost kind of like it's it's almost like Twitter made a trailer for the episode for me before I watched <laughs> the episode, and in that sense, I kind of like that almost. I I don't know. I don't know if that's too if that's too. Um, uh, uh like heretical to say <laughs> oh no i think but i think there is the case right that um uh if if knowing what happens is enough to stop you from enjoying something one does have to ask like what what was the mm -hmm. point of the thing in the first place yeah uh, what, if all you want to yeah. do is open your presents and then you forget about them afterwards were they was that a really a good gift right yeah exactly so yeah i know that that's a, that's a good point that's a good point yeah i caught a few things just uh turning it on real quick but i would always have to just just turn away and be like, all right, I'm going to get to it. And then I will join the chorus of shouting about it in, in due time. It forces me to wake up earlier, which is a plus and a minus, but I want to get those memes out early in the morning because the G-Witch meme machine is in full blast starting 5 a.m. Eastern time, 5.36, depending on when Crutcherill drops it. So I need to make sure, and I can't drop it too early because I want to get traction. So I have to like prime and prep my memes for like early afternoon, and then I start just dropping them throughout the day. Oh, you yeah. know, this 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 might be a good time, I guess, while we're on this social media a bit and talking about the sort of experience of watching. Stephen brought up a thing that I don't think is in the document, which is just sort of, you know, the, the meme culture around it, the Saleta Sundays. And I, I wanted to get a real quick heat check. Uh, do you feel like you have a Witch for Mercury uh, poster meme that you are most proud of? Undoubtedly for me, it's got to be the... Um, the almost Gundam means it isn't Gundam, right? I photoshopped uh, Prospera's head onto the Phoenix Wright head. Not uh, the Palpatine remain... meme? Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, the Palpatine meme is good. Palpatine telling Anakin Skywalker, uh, if you run, you gain one. If you move forward, you gain two. It is very good. 
But I look, I put a little more work into the almost Gundam means it isn't Gundam uh, thing. And, uh, and that's even better now because Prospera came out and said, no, it's Gundam. <laughs> even better in retrospect. I think um, for me, uh, I was very pleased with lots of things I noticed in the show and tried to talk seriously about. But I was also quite pleased with the um, the moment when Mirina tells Suleta to go on a date with Elan uh, with a bag fumbled superimposed on it in, in, in Dark Souls, <laughs> you know, down-verbed. Um, uh, that, that, and that, that went down quite well as well, so I was quite quite pleased with that one. I put no effort into my posting. There is no opening up a, like an image editor or anything. It's just stream of consciousness thoughts that tumble out of my brain that occasionally people respond to. Uh, the one that makes me smile the most on a quick check, um, after the fight with Shadik where Prospera cries or a tear goes down her face, I just immediately thought of the image of Rocco from Mega64 doing Gendo Ikari just... Mm. Up on a balcony, like, ha for mysterious reasons, I love this. Speaking of the giant robot FM account, PMC outlapped me. Like, he was running circles around me with the best uh, Witch for Mercury memes. Usually I'm the one popping off the memes on, a, like, a daily, weekly basis, but PMC had the best G-Witch memes. The one I made that did the best, it was really early on, I really captured the moment quickly, was when Meereen says you're sex crazed in episode two or three. And then I wrote, this one is going to get a lot of mileage on Gundam Twitter. Whenever you call out Gundam Twitter, Gundam Twitter responds. It's either plus or minus, and I, that got the most likes for me, I think. I, w- I was going to credit you with the with the Bob the Builder stuff. I think that's, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's very powerful. That was a good one, too. And I made a lot of hay online about um, the birthday bit. I used that a lot. That's a good question, though, PMC. We're, uh, hopefully in a part two, we're going to also talk more about just the experience of watching Witch for Mercury, a new Gundam television show in 2023, and it being such an, like, an online thing. Because I think that really changes the experience of watching in the first place. But going back to what we talked about in that first episode, we were right about the hunt for new audiences. Producer Takuya Okamoto openly remarked on this in interviews, noting that teenagers he talked to had mentioned how it felt like Gundam wasn't for them, and pointing out that it's been two decades since Seed. And the show has felt pitched at a youth audience. So let's talk about some whys and hows here. I feel like I'm in peak teacher mode. I'm going to throw, throw the mic to Thal real quick. Yeah, so fine. Perhaps most overwhelmingly, and the thing that everyone picks out, but they're not wrong to pick it out, so let's put it on the board first. It preserved its school setting, so the show didn't just begin with a school that was then invaded, leading us into a giant total war. Um, uh, the the show began at school, and, and the implication of the end is that the next season might also begin at school. Um, so if G-Witch has a big war in its future, it's been holding it back so far and many of its elements can be mapped onto real life school experience i clearly uh i I think it's reasonable to say that the people making it probably assume that a younger audience might be mapping some of what what happens on the in the show onto you know the the lived experience of of being a, a school pupil um in this context it's quite funny that suleta is in fact unusually old and unusually tall for a Gundam protagonist um, th- although fans have been saying oh this is you know this is this Gundam's um, really for kids uh, the protagonist is if anything older than average and taller than average 
you can also find this sort of openness to, to, to new audiences uh, elsewhere in details like um, uh, sort of things like where the music comes from. Um, so the ending song was the debut of a new artist, uh, Shiyui, I think. It was produced by Ryo from Supercell, which is a particular music group that sort of crosses into sort of nerd game anime circles, but has a sort of wider, wider circulation. Compare the and, and, and contrast the, the jazz and retro pop of the Gundam Thunderbolt adaptation for you know a sense of the, the gap between that and, and um and what G Witch is doing. So there there are some some things there. Um we'll we'll touch on the length, which I think is a big big thing, a big hook for people, uh, a little bit down the road. But I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was the immediacy and continued pointed attention at characterization and streamlined development of the relationships. It feels distinctly modern. Nothing particularly out of place in an anime series airing in 2022. I think it's fairly common. But in the context of Gundam TV, it's like somebody really knocked down this big wall that I think the franchise has struggled with a lot in the past. And this feels really open to newer audiences, people who have just been watching other anime series they can look at it and be like hey Gundam Gundam is familiar to me in this way this is something I can engage with I think it's really fun to see that the producers and writers are employing these tools and techniques and still playing around with a lot of these really crusty old Gundam tropes I mean some of this stuff goes back to 1979 we've been having fun pointing out like the Zeta stuff the Char stuff but they're doing it in new contexts and making it feel fresh and that's that's really exciting because I like old stuff. I like new stuff. I love it when they click together in satisfying ways like this. Yeah. So I think, I think generally that point is like absolutely correct. Certainly, you know, I think, I think it speaks to all of us and what we enjoy about it. Uh, you know, you're already talking about the older Gundam references. A lot of the early discourse that I think we saw was the extent to which the early episodes were pulling on uh, you know, old other older works like Atena or the Tempest by one one William Shakespeare, and so that to me, of course, that's because you know we're probably looking at discourse by peers, and so I'm wondering, you know, are there works that you know were m- maybe more um, you know that were alluded to that are more relevant to a younger audience that we were overlooking? Like, is there some other tie-in? And, and Maybe there isn't. Maybe it is more just you know general general premise. But I'm just kind of curious because I see some of these references and I'm like, ah, yeah, this is also for the olds. Wait a second, how much of this is for the olds? That's a good question, and I can think of two answers. And one one answer is um, maybe most of the allusions and references are are to older things. Maybe older things, maybe things tend to attract allusion once they've been around a while. I, I don't know whether you know one would immediately reference something that 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 hasn't yet established itself and stood out um, and been remembered. Um, it's possible that most of the allusions are uh, sops to you know thrown to to pacify older viewers. <laughs> um, certainly, I I don't think. I didn't pick up on any references to more recent and more contemporary things that were as as kind of uh, barefaced and loud as things like the quotation of the original, you know, the script of the original series in in the, in the dueling oath. A second answer to that is I wonder whether I wonder whether Shakespeare in particular is actually maybe pitched quite young 
as an allusion. Stephen's talked on the podcast before about teaching students Shakespeare. Now, of course, people are not going to study Shakespeare in Japan in the way that in some English-speaking countries Shakespeare is sort of baked into the school curriculum, um, either for positive reasons he's quite good or or for negative reasons you know the the formation of a particular national sense of what a what a canon is and where literature comes from but being interested in classical literature being interested in shakespeare that's the sort of thing i imagine or not more than imagine that's the sort of thing that teenagers in japanese novels and anime sometimes are into right the kind of more literary sort of teenage. so i wonder whether the shakespeare stuff is actually partly pitched to a young audience where there is, you know, there's a sector of people who, who maybe like to read and are exploring classics. So there's, I don't know, there's a couple of, it's a great question, PNC. And I think, yeah, um, yeah. I, mean, I think it gets back to the sense of like, when you, when you invoke myth, any sort of myth, uh, the Christian mythology, Norse mythology, like it, that's something that is so common that sometimes, you know, you just find an audience. I always think of um, like, why did the Da Vinci code become popular? Well, Cause everyone already knew all these stories, you know, like they kind of, <laughs> there's just this broad, you know, audience that had been taught Christian myth in their in their youth, and they had it all at the ready. So, of course, it was easy for them to get into. And so, here, you know, Shakespeare. I don't know. I'm not look. I'm not going to try and compare the popularity of Shakespeare and the Bible, but Shakespeare, you know, pr- pretty pretty commonly taught, probably known by a number of people. And as a as someone who teaches university students English literature, I can tell you that actually, at least in Britain, I think we have some students who, who know Shakespeare better than bits of Shakespeare better than the Bible because Shakespeare's still in the school curriculum um, whereas the Bible very useful for cultural literacy though though it is you know regardless of any any religious claims um, it's actually not really studied or read um, by and Britain is obviously a very very secular um, country as one of the paradoxes of of the UK that it has an established church and and really not very many practicing mm-hmm. Christians but yeah um, yeah no, that's good to bring up I, I I dealt with like 13 years of Catholic school before <laughs> attending university so sometimes I forget uh, that not everyone had that experience well, you, would, you would do very well you would do very well studying 14th century English literature which is <laughs> um, where the Bible is very handy um, uh, yeah 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 and speaking from someone who teaches at a school with over 2,000 students and a book room filled with over 2,000 books. The Tempest, I don't think, is being currently taught by any teachers at the school, but it has been. And I could, there are probably 80 copies of The Tempest in our book room. Out of the 35-plus Shakespeare plays, it's probably in the... Like, if, if you're judging this based on teachability or popularity or the amount of times it's been taught, it's probably in the upper 10%. Just it, it, Tempest is one of his more popular plays. Also something to keep in mind, too, like we might think some of these references are very obscure, but also keep in mind, as far as I know, from my limited perspective, Mobile Suit Gundam 0079 is sacrosanct in Japanese pop culture, kind of like the first three Star Wars films. Just through cultural osmosis, people can pick up on some of these references. Star Wars, for instance, has been spoofed for the last 40 years. So you might not have seen the original trilogy, but you've seen it spoofed in Family Guy or The Simpsons, so it can understand that language. Like maybe there was a Gundam reference in an episode of Lucky Star that kind of chains or bridges the gap between generations. Or well, Lucky Star itself is a retro anime these days. <laughs> that's true. I know. <laughs> I'm a, showing my age. That's a good point because um, you might be one of the teenagers that the producer mentioned who who sort of said, "Well, Gundam feels like it isn't for us." But those teenagers can probably recognize a Gundam. They may not have seen any Gundam, but if you show them a Gundam like a mainline blue red white yellow gundam they can probably all say yeah that's that's a gundam so 
you 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 have a point there about about sort of cultural um, diffusion. Yeah, they've they've seen Char in a gas station <laughs> commercial or a Toyota yeah. commercial or a McDonald's commercial or they bought those chocolate almonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say you've seen these characters eat a Big Mac, sell a car, be on a a bag of chips. Like you, you are probably casually aware of what an Amaro Ray is. <laughs> Now, we're all active on Gundam and anime Twitter, probably to a fault. Have you noticed an uptick of new fans? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I try to follow a diverse collection of people outside of just the regular giant Mecha robot sickos. FM. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to be a little respectful with it, but yes, robot sickos. <laughs> and yet so many of them are coming to The Witch for Mercury and being like, this is my first Gundam. This is really clicking with me. This is something that I can finally approach. And I, at least a few of them, I think, are seeing it and seeing some of the aspects and then starting to look backwards and look through the Gundam catalog. I think that is really exciting. And even now, right now, we're in a down period where there are no episodes and people are still going at it. I see Suleta and Mjorne memes every day. People are make, still making ghoul jokes. The best guy. <laughs> like they're, talk- they're talking about Gundam, a Gundam show that's currently off the air, more than most of the shows that are currently airing right now. I think January is just a, I think we're just in a really slow season right now, but people are still really hungry for it. It's still very much on their minds, and that's that's cool. I have no hard numbers for this. I have no idea. I know Blu-ray sales don't mean anything anymore, but as we've noted, the model kits are selling out. They're hard to get. I I think this one's going to be a big deal for a long time, both as merchandising from Bandai Namco and doing spinoffs and stuff, and just as a landmark for people just getting into Gundam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very hard to know, isn't it? And and it, one just has to work anecdotally. But certainly, I, similarly, my impression is, I've I've seen a lot of people I know uh, and a lot of people elsewhere um, watching uh, G Witch. I've seen some people trying the original Gundam or trying Revolutionary Girl, Lieutenant, and that, and that sort of thing because of of the Witch of Mercury, which is great. And actually, if if the Witch of Mercury implodes and goes down in flames, that will still have been a really good thing. Like you know, if if, if a few people discover they really liked First Gundam or Utena or something else um, through it, that's that's fantastic. I've been struck by how for a bunch of younger uh, people posting um, on Twitter and um, in the in the in the dark places of the earth, like like Reddit. That's a phrase in the King James Bible, speaking of the Bible, uh, the dark places <laughs> of the earth. Um, G-Witch has, uh, has offered their first experience of a relatively grand action drama anime that is an original show. So, you know, you can't go to the light novels, you can't go to the manga, um, uh, there's not a source material thing where you have to put up with people who've read the source material telling you what's, what's going to happen. No and I've PS2 seen people game remark, for PM to see it, PMC to play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> PMC can come in and say, actually, if you, if you, if you do this, the letter skips the level where, where mm-hmm. you know, she, she splats the... So, um, <laughs> uh, the... Um, uh, and I was struck by how many of those people have commented how much they've enjoyed watching a show where you just don't know what's going to happen each week. And as we were saying, you know, you, you watch it on a Sunday and then you scream about it on, online with everyone else. Um, and everyone has just had the same experience. Um, and uh, that might not always serve as the best way to watch something. Uh, we might come back to that when we come to the end of the next episode after this one uh, and really come down to, like, summing up G-Witch and is it, is it any good and, and what are its strengths and weaknesses. But um, 
that G-Witch should be some people's first contact with original anime reminds us just how much the standard issue internet anime fan is fairly new to anime. Um, you know, people tend to be into anime for two to four years in their teenage years, which is fine. It's a good thing. Good for them. More power to them. But And, and how much of that fan is locked into late night adaptations of things in other media. Um, so that's a really interesting phenomenon, I thought. Speaking as someone who interacts with the youths occasionally, I can confirm that I have at least one student watching Witch for Mercury who was also at the Cuckoo's Dones Island screening that PMC and I attended. And that was a pretty well-attended screening overall, and there were some young people there. M- more olds than not, but still. Now, this, this particular student has been deep into model building for a while, so he's not a new convert, but in an environment where the majority of my students are hyper-fixated on Chainsaw Man and stuff like Spy Family, it is notable. I don't have the best perspective on, like, like I mentioned before, I have 2000, over 2,000 students in the building. I get a sense for what anime is popular. It's usually the popular shonen stuff. If I had to put a number to it, I would probably say that I might have there might be five to ten students in the whole school watching Witch for Mercury, which could be an impressive number or a dra- startlingly no- low number, depending on how you look at it. I think, um, yeah, I, I, we have to bear in mind, right, that in the English-speaking world, Gundam is not that big a deal historically. Yeah. I mean, there's there's the in America the flourishing around wing, but but you know, f- from a low base, ten students in in a school might actually be be quite significant. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. In American high schools, Wing was the peak, and I think a lot of people stayed on for G Gundam, and then it dropped off completely. Yeah, that that comparison to the, the general anime audience is really important because I think for me, you know, anecdotally, as, as we we're all saying, it's sort of hard to uh, to perceive on a, on a wide scale. The general anime viewers that I know through my non-robot sickos channel, so I'm, I'm talking about the speedrun sickos, uh, the anime viewers among them were still pretty distracted by other things. I think Steven already mentioned the, the two big ones, uh, Spy Family and Chainsaw Man. So I'm curious if it will break through for them in a less competitive season, a less stacked season. I will say, however, that uh, my so my uh, my partner is a moderator for a channel called Blind Wave, which is like a YouTube reaction discussion channel that got really big around the time that Game of Thrones surged in popularity. And they tend to be like a very much uh, like they they go for the most popular things. They you know they love their Star Wars and whatever the prestige thing of the moment is. So obviously they're big on Last of Us, the MCU stuff. Like they're a pretty light pop fair sort of discussion channel. And uh, in her moderation of their anime stuff, uh, which Mercury is getting talked about. It is getting talked about by their very young audience to the point where my wife, who usually will not watch Gundam is open to watching the dub of Witch for Mercury, which I, we have not done yet, uh, but I'm, I'm curious to, to check out. And she also started watching Tourney Gundam, which is, I think, a much more exciting development. But, I mean, both are good, of course. Uh, but, you know, this is... Uh, I, I think Witch for Mercury has so changed the conversation around Gundam, at least for this corner of the internet, mm. that uh, my spouse, who previously refused... Watched, watched the first episode of First Gundam and said, absolutely not, <laughs> is now willing to watch two Gundam shows. So uh, I, I do think there is some change. On Tuesday, when I go back to school, I should print out a, a picture of the turn A Gundam and just go up to each and every student, all 2,000 plus of them, and go, do you know who this is? Do you know what this is? And uh, probably only that one student would be able to identify it. Are You'll you doing like, like a G Gundam routine about the turn A Gundam there? Is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you, have you seen Where's my Gundam? dad? Yeah. <laughs> have you have you seen this Gundam? 
yeah, we'll have to hope it does well. I mean, it, it's sometimes I worry when fans get too invested in um, the success of something that they like. I mean, it, 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 it's nice when something you like is endorsed by lots of people, but um, uh, one shouldn't root one's happiness in the commercial success of a TV show. But but definitely, yeah, fingers crossed. Um, knock on wood. And um, uh, hopefully, hopefully, um, it'll it'll have moved the dial on Gundam, as PMC says. Now we were right about the continuing use of hand-drawn animation, which, as any seasoned anime fan can tell you, is not a thriving art form. Whilst 3D CG has been used in a few shots, most mechanical animation has been done by hand. Now, Thal, we first had you on the podcast during our origin coverage where we talked about the industry shifting to 3D CG. So I know you have some thoughts about this. Yeah, yeah. So I know obviously, you know, the the use of hand-drawn animation for for things other than machines is is still going strong, but if you see a mecha show come out these days, uh it it is almost always uh 3D CG. Not not always, and there are the, your exceptions or Grand Belms and so on. I don't know how many people remember Grand Belm, but it it does exist. Um uh, yeah, uh, the use of 3D CG for the mobile suits in G-Witch seems limited mostly to early on in the show. It's most noticeable in the first episode. There's a 3D CG model of, of Ariel. Um, it's used, of course, in the Gundam corporate commercial, but the point of that advert is that it isn't very good. <laughs> um, uh, and um, it also, I think, might be limited to Ariel and the Demi Trainer, or at least only to a few suits. Because, of course, you do have to invest time building a 3D CG model um, and then get a return on that time uh, in your use of it. Uh, so Ariel and the Demi Trainer. We see a lot of normal, um, non-customized uh, Demi Trainers, the, the non-choo-choo Demi Trainers, the boring Demi Trainers, um, uh, in the background. And it's understandable that they might choose to use 3D models uh, for those. And I would say that the hand-drawn mechanical animation we've had has generally stuck to a kind of near-realist paradigm, um, by which that, I don't mean that um, what's depicted is plausible. Clearly, giant robots like this are implausible. But rather, that the drawings aim at a kind of realist consistency. Uh, so you, you don't see mobile suits squashing and stretching, uh, as you might in, say, uh, Get a Robo, just to pick a kind of common um, point of reference. Such an approach doesn't suit everyone's tastes. I've seen a few aficionados grumble at it. Um, I think I've got a, two responses to that. Um, first of all, the realist paradigm isn't actually total in the show. If you look closely at the use of perspective and, uh, and look for stretched mechanical bodies, they are there in a few battles. Uh, for example, in Gule's fight with Vim in episode 12, um, there's a few shots where the, a the animation is sort of freed up uh, and there's more expression in the use of the mechanical bodies. And uh, the second thing I would say is simply that if hand-drawn mechanical animation is to survive, and we don't know whether it will, but um, if it's to survive, it has to keep happening. And sometimes that means serving the expectations of a broad audience, which I think is perhaps a comment one might extend a bit more broadly, uh, you know, beyond the mechanical animation to some other things about, about uh, The Witch from Mercury. So that's my initial kind of uh, sense of uh, trying to sum up the mechanical animation in, in G-Witch. I'm very glad it's here. Long may it continue. I want an expensive OVA in the year 2023 um, featuring some really impressive hand-drawn animation, mecha animation. Yeah, G a G-Witch revival OVA for, for, for people in, in some decades who remember. <laughs> yeah, no, Thal put it better than I ever could. Uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative that it's there. I understand the, the limitations of it. Uh, we'll certainly talk about some of the production woes that are very apparent. 
I'm very happy that we got some of those big shots of the aerial and opponents and stuff. Like those are those are the money shots, and those are what we're here for. There's one um, one shot in episode twelve, one or two shots, which uh, Obari did, the famous um, uh, famous sort of animator and director, and uh, that is absolutely like a money shot. Sort of you 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 have Obari do the special giant gun combining shot in the final episode of your season, and that's yeah, that's the correct allocation of resources, <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's and that's also something that is easier to do if your show has Gundam in the title. Like if you, uh, as I saw people you know remarking people who study animators more closely than i do it's a little easier to get people to to agree to to do to do a few cuts for you if if you're able to say you know i'm i'm calling about whether you'd like to contribute to the next gundam as opposed to you know we're doing a giant rebel show um so yeah uh, absolutely it's also nice to see these old timers these seasoned veterans be able to continue to practice their craft um mm-hmm. like well into their late stages of their career we talked about this in the first episode of uh, Radio for Mercury, about the length of which a uh, G-Witch. Uh, it's been a contested topic online. We still don't know how long the show as a whole will last. From what's been announced so far, it might be a two-core show. This would be the first time a mainline AU Gundam TV series has run for two cores in split single-core seasons rather than four cores in two split double core seasons that is a that's a thou sentence right there i really appreciate the specificity of it now Thal, yeah. i know i know you have thoughts about this as do all of we yeah i mean to put it another way this is the first time that a, a tv season um of gundam actually any gundam even including g rico has had the same number of episodes as the oh ms team which we think of as a short ova right in a gundam context um uh so now the length of a gundam tv season has reached the length of a short ova um I mean, I think that's what one would expect, given the industry conditions. Um, but it's definitely a change for the franchise uh, within within the industry that produces it. And I don't know what, what our thoughts are um, building on that. Yeah, I know it's still early days, but we've all thought about it. In the shower, we all thought about how long is G-Witch going to last. Let's call our shots. Two-core, three-core, four-core, six-core, ten-core if you want. Like. <laughs> Outside of that, those outlandish uh, predictions, how would you feel about a 26-episode series? Gee which 26 episodes, two manga side stories in Gundam Ace, that's it. How would you feel about that? And I, I suspect that may be more likely than not. I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't know. Um, if that happens, then long-form original TV anime for audiences other than small children has finally died. Or finally died, in fact, in 2017 when Iron Blooded Orphans finished, which I think is a, is a bit bleak as a general fact. Uh, I think of Ryosuke Takahashi saying on his commentary to Armored Trooper Photons that he likes writing long shows and he finds Tukur um, restrictive. But that's not a judgment on on G Witch itself, and I can definitely see ways in which, you know, to use an aerial metaphor, the show could stick the landing in in Tukur. Um, uh, and I I wouldn't I know that wouldn't harm my enjoyment of this particular show. I just think it would be a bit of a, a sad uh, marker of a change in in anime in general outside of the broader context of what it means for gundam to be now a shorter show i i'm thinking it's going to be 26 and i i think that's perfectly fine for this more modern approach to the storytelling and the characters i we will go into gundam length issues but i think there's been a lot of it's struggled at times to find to keep tension going, especially in those middle turns where it just turns into sort of 
episodic mush. Um, I've struggled through many shows that just, it's really easy to lose interest, but like the interest is there with G Witch. Every episode, it's pushing things forward. It's managing to say new things about the characters. And I think maybe a longer version of that might be a little too stretched out. I, I could be wrong. We'll see. But I think 26 is going to be a nice spot for it. Sort of as a side thought, I was wondering if the Adstella setting will be expanded upon in something more broad than just like a side story or little addendums. Sunrise has been, or whatever we're calling Sunrise now, has been very conservative about expanding the alternate universes outside of the Universal Century, but I think this one might be one that they're they're rethinking. That uh, this is a base as a base for new content, new viewers. Just, hey, it's a familiar universe. Maybe we can just explore more stories outside of Suleta and Miorine. I'd be really curious to see what happens with that. If only to explore new material over, you know, trying to do another Federation versus Zeon story that takes place in November of UC 0082 that no one mentions, so it's small enough. It's getting crowded in that Universal (laughs) Century timeline. Yeah, and when Sunrise does go back to those AU shows, it's usually for a manga retelling, which might include some new perspectives, but by and large, like at its core, it's still just a retelling of that TV show, like Gundam X or the Gundam Wing, uh, the more recent Gundam Wing retelling. And I'm going to have to agree with Russell. I think G-Witch is going to be a two-core show, which I have mixed feelings about, as both of you basically already addressed. On one hand, from a storytelling perspective, I do think Gundam TV shows typically do not benefit from a 40-plus episode length. They tend to lose narrative cohesion the longer they go on. Clarity and consistent characterization tend to suffer as viewer fatigue sets in. And once that momentum dissipates, it's often a slog to get to the end. I'm not subtweeting Gundam Wing here, but I'm also subtweeting Gundam Wing here. It's exceedingly difficult to write, direct, and produce 49, 50 episodes of an animated production under intense working conditions and maintain a high bar of quality. There are always going to be dips, but sometimes those dips can deepen over 10 or so episodes. However, as Thal pointed out, if this really is the case, it really is the end of an era. For all the storytelling pitfalls that a four-core series generates, it's indulgent in some really compelling ways. It provides a creative team the means to explore a setting and conflict. Wars are never binaries with clear lines of division. There are always multiple sides, ideologies, offshoots, and evolutions, which is difficult to convey in a more truncated show. Furthermore, a longer show can be a bulwark against executive interference and commercial interest. With a shorter show, you kind of have to get to the action and show off those new mechs to sell the obligatory toys. That's the reason the show exists in the first place. With a longer show, however, a team can potentially experiment with form and be more indulgent in storytelling. As an example, we see this in the first few episodes of Turn A. Again, I've only seen the first two episodes of Turn A, but they unfold at a comparatively glacial pace. Of course, I understand this has more to do with Tomino and his clout as an industry elder statesman, but still the potential is there. But hell, maybe this doesn't matter anymore. G-Witch had five episodes without a proper mobile suit fight, so maybe this is not an issue. Yeah, and those five episodes include two episodes which sit right next to each other. Episodes uh, seven and eight, I think. So there's a real lacuna in the mobile suit action uh, there compared to traditional Gundam. Um, uh, And we have had Gundam TV series before which have had episodes without fights, but uh, just going two episodes without it is... is, um, 
quite a break. Then again, if you think about those episodes, those are fast-moving um, experiences. They're, they're nothing like watching Turn A Gundam. There's no sense of the meditative pace of Turn A's gentler parts, just to use it as, as a point of comparison. I'm not saying everything needs to be con- compared to Turn A. And one of the points of ep- episodes 2 and 7 uh, are that, um, or is that, that Mirine fights her own series of battles in the upper echelons of the Benerit group to parallel Suleta's sort of work on, on the dueling field. So perhaps at these uh, shorter lengths, the possibility for real meandering is still remains closed off even when there aren't um, uh, mobile suit fights. And the lack of meandering could be good or bad. I was actually going to go off on a rant about uh, longer Gundam shows having that space to experiment and kind of mess around um, and tie it in with uh, Double Zeta Gundam. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a contentious issue. But if Gundam was to be long again, I would like to see a shenanigan heavy one where mm. we have conflicts and then we just let people mess around and sort of play play in this little universe. Um if anything I say today is going to get you emails, uh, that's going to be the one. Uh, make more Double Zeta Gundam, please. I was going to say, I wouldn't mind if, let's say, if G-Witch was a four-core show, blow up Ostacasia Core 3, just do school shit, like actual fun school shit in Core 2, unrelated to dueling and corporate interests. Just give me, like, I don't know, the proverbial dog ate Suleta's homework, etc., etc. I want, I want that shit. <laughs> I can imagine the uh, the the riots online already. Um, I know. The, the <laughs> and I, we, I mentioned Votoms and thinking about it, that is a four core show where at the end of every core there's a, a climax in the plot, and then it moves to a new place, and you get a new a new quarter of the show in a different setting. Uh, it, it is all one plot, but there's a very clear sort of sense. Of, okay, so this is the this is the kind of arc in the Blade Runner city and this is the arc in Space Vietnam War and well Space Indochina actually because it, it references various bits of various conflicts in Indochina in the later 20th century um, and it would be really interesting to see a Gundam show that, that, that did that actually as a, as, a, as a way of dealing with, with having all that space although it seems like maybe it won't have that space in future. I yep. know the relative oh sorry Stephen. I, I keep cutting people off I apologize. No I was just going to say when I imagine like the wild turns G-Witch could take and all the factions I want to explore and all the places I want to go to, I think to myself, we have potentially 12 episodes left. Or we, If they do this, this is going to be like the worst compilation film. The pacing is going to be produce so much whiplash, and I worry <laughs> deeply because of it. Um, I, I, guess, I guess we'll get back to the scale soon. I, uh, so I'll just touch on this briefly. I don't know if G-Witch is going to get big in the traditional Gundam sense of having a big Earth versus space war that spans, that touches the lives of billions of people. I I think it might be smaller than that. I think it might be limited to boardrooms and the school, touch on Earth, maybe go back to Mercury a little bit. But I think it's going to be a little smaller. I think this season has indicated that it's not interested in putting all of that on its plate. Uh, of course, I could be wrong, and the school could blow up in episode 13 and the war starts, but... I, I'm feeling it's a smaller show here, which I think is is interesting. It's an interesting comparison to the rest of them. Uh, but back to the relative lack of uh, mobile suit action, um, at least by franchise standards. I know that rubbed people the wrong way, but as Thal was talking about, it, it allows the characters to explore their own conflicts outside of the mobile suits, the business aspect, and the suits are never far behind because they're always, at times, literally looming over the characters watching them we can we never forget that the problems 
all go back to these mobile suits and this is how the conflicts are going to likely be resolved in the big ways which is neat oh yeah and it's it's nice to see that they're breaking from some of the Gundam molds of having to do weekly battles that oftentimes just run together. I remember watching Iron-Blooded Orphans, which I thought started out really strong, and then they get into the spaceship and they have to take the almost season-long trip to Earth, and then it just becomes the weekly battles, and my interest just crashed at that point, and Iron-Blooded Orphans never really recovered from that. Uh, and it helps that when it does do the action, it's all it's all uniquely constructed. It drives the plot, and they're they're really exciting. Like it doesn't. I don't confuse any of these uh, duels or anything. I'm not confusing who's participating, what the stakes are, and that outside of a Gundam context doesn't seem like a big deal. But in within Gundam, I think that is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and uh, you could say that having more space between your mobile suit fights is a like a sensible adaptation to an anime industry where you might not be able to sustain like a serious, uh, a serious sustained like drawn out mobile suit battle in in every episode. It it may simply be a sensible response to circumstances as well. Not simply, but it may as well be a a, a response to circumstances. I am kind of in the camp where I I can. Uh, tune in each week and just watch some robots smash each other and not worry too much about why. Um, however, I appreciate <laughs> that um, too many Gundam shows like that uh, in in succession might not perhaps be 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 best for the for the franchise's ongoing health. So, yeah, one thing I would want to say it's kind of fun to bring up both uh, what does Sunrise do with non UC shows and also to bring up IBO because uh, I believe. IBO is due for some new content in the form of a mobile game, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it's. I think it's a mobile okay. game, and it has some uh, animation mm. attached to it. It follows the son of Mikazuki, I think it was. Uh, and he's now a teenager and gets behind the wheel of a Gundam and does Gundam protagonists. Is stuff. your child behind the wheel I of a see- Gundam? <laughs> I, I've seen some of the key art for that. Uh, I think it's called Erd Hunt. Mm-hmm. That sound that sounds right. I don't know if that's that's a mobile ass title. Yeah, I I don't know if it's been released yet or not. I mostly bring that up to illustrate the fact that if uh, if you know if this is as successful as we all feel like it is, and but we are witnessing the end of an era of a of a four core television program. What does a highly successful non-UC show look like in at this time and you know what kind of media does that generate uh and I'm I'll be curious to see I mean I certainly I think we've already seen you know which Mercury be successful in in Gunpla uh it started showing up promotionally in things like Gundam Evolution the the first person shooter game uh material like that so I I think uh the question then becomes if this show six to 26 episodes uh what what is the future look like is it a sequel series is it you know, something like the, this, what IBO is doing. I think that's, you know, that'll be an open question, right? Because the end of an era presumably means the start of something new. I know it's more standard than maybe some more of the exciting prospects, but I will probably get into Super Robot Wars when Suleta gets to hang out with old Gundam protagonists. 
that will probably get me to pull the trigger. I'm extremely excited for a Super Robot Wars where one of the settings it begins with is Ad Stella, and um, some some Gundam protagonists from some other setting arrive there and are very confused about why their Gundams are now illegal. Um, I'm I'm extremely in favor of that as, <laughs> as a Super Robot Wars plot. That that's a very good bit. Amaro Ray is going to get convicted in Gundam court for Gundam crime. <laughs> Do the Phoenix Wright crossover. L- literally, your meme will come to life, PMC. I just want to mm-hmm. see the awful, awful things that Char and Prospera will do when they start hanging out. Just the, the war crimes and child abuse that will ensue. Yeah, we, but like we can't, Char, you can't say she could have been a mother to me. You can't do that. That'll, <laughs> that'll cause problems in a crossover. Speaking of Char, Prospera is the show's Char, but the idea we touched on in our prologue episode that Suleta represents the young Char's career still has legs. She is indeed at school with the child of the man responsible for killing her father, and indeed her engagement to Mirin replicates Gundam's original gay ship, Charma. Now, while an obvious choice, the decision to drive a wedge between Suleta and Mirin is a smart one, I think. It opens up a lot of possibilities. It's a it's a writing risk I'm glad they took, and it's an honest one, too, reflective of where the characters were at that point in time in their lives. Considering Char's trajectory in UC Gundam writ large, I'm hoping Suleta begins to think more for herself. That's not a criticism of Suleta. Um, that's just I want to see her worldview open a bit. I want to see her to get radicalized in some way. The other shoe is going to drop. She's going to see Prospera for the villain she is and hopefully recognize that she's being used as a pawn and react accordingly. To credit Zeta and Char's counterattack, even though even though those works produce a little whiplash in viewers, I think they both do right by Char to some degree. They provide him with interiority and give him an ideological perspective. He's not just a revenge machine. And I hope we get that from Suleta. I want her to become a more active character without sacrificing all the work the writers have already done, making her such a dynamic and relatable character. I think there's a way to synthesize Suleta's anxious, curious, and loyal disposition with an awoken worldview. And Sunrise has released, recently, like in the last two weeks, released some promotional key art featuring Suleta, Mirin, and the upgraded Ariel standing on what appears to be the ru- ruins of Ostacasia. It concerns me a little bit. I want the show to lean into and address the tension, suspicion, and hesitation that now exist in their romance. At the end of episode 12, Mirin is understandably shaken after watching Suleta murder someone. I don't want them to sweep these concerns under the rug and revert to the core one status quo. I don't necessarily think they will. Um, I'm code Gios brain poisoned right now, so that's where my worries uh, originate. And going back to our discussion on two cores versus four cores versus three cores, this is something a four core show has the time to explore if it so wanted to, then I'm worried 12 more episodes can't. I I worry that we're going to revert back too quickly, like by the middle of episode 13. Yeah, I I like. Uh, well, first of all, I I like the second season key art. Full stop. Like I, re- it's really fun. Um, uh, I like that it seems to suggest Mirene protecting Suleta. Um, in fact, Mirene and the the Ariel appear to be kind of aligned. Um, uh, one one doesn't want to kind of spend too much effort reading into these things because I'm sure I'm sure season two will have surprises for us. But um, uh, we have seen Mirene sort of protecting Suleta before, like in episode seven. But a lot of the first season was sort of framed by its opening problem. You know, Mirene is trapped in a school where people are dueling um, uh, in order if, essentially to control her. Uh, and and then the plot was often shaped by Suleta defending Mirene and helping with Mirene's problems. 
and the and we also were diving into the problems of the other Benerit group uh, children. Um, or I suppose in Shadik's case, the problems that Shadik causes to his father. Uh, episode 12 finished by reminding us that Seleta might have problems of her own, some really big, scary problems. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if murder or killing is the right word for what was happening there, but it's certainly very shocking for, for Mirene. And uh, if the second season is going to see us Mirene grappling with those, uh, I'm, I'm all for that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I think we can safely say that Mirene has caught Suleta <laughs> with her problems red-handed. Uh, to to be sure after <laughs> yeah <laughs> let me play the laugh track that i i edited in now uh but i i don't know i think the uh, in terms of it being 26 episodes the destruction of the school is encouraging to me because it, it suggests that there might be a time lapse there's going to be some rapid change in in the status quo uh and when you change one thing in the status quo i think you have to change a lot of other things in the status quo so you know concerns that we would revert to you know to some sort of you know, suddenly we're back at school again. I, you know, th- this is a w- broadcast to me that, that that is not going to happen, uh, which is which is good. Uh, I, I think at this point, you know, I, I'm very primed to be with our perspective characters again. And and the biggest mystery to me, and maybe this is a, a really a different question, is uh, you, who who is the primary antagonist at this point? Because I can't believe it's Delling anymore. Uh, it, you know, so I, I, that's sort of the thing that I am most interested in terms of like th- what this art does for me is it is it puts some things to rest maybe again i could be reading too much into it but it, it leads me to that question then like that's now my biggest mystery yeah i really like this piece of key art it's it suggests a lot of dynamic changes to what we've seen so far the ariel is now very heavily armed and looks like it's ready to really get down to business um, you know, Miorine is looking ahead, you know, boldly now that she she has more of a place in the world. She's at least somewhat recon- uh, reconciled with her father. She understands him more as a person now. And then we have Soleta down there looking suspicious and looking kind of broken. <laughs> it's it looks heavy. It looks like we're going to if they don't blow up the school, certainly some really serious stuff is going to happen there. Um, I'm really excited by this image. It's, it's really, I mean, it's just, it's really cool to see. But, uh, going back to just that final image, I, I love the blunt, literal quality of it, where Soleta and Ariel just, they have the blood on their hands. (laughs) That's just, I love that the show can pull off these fraught emotional confrontations and that really tender, touching, uh, confession in the 11th episode where they're finally able to see each other through a cloud through their clouds of anxieties and fears and then in the next one Soleta pancakes a guy it's i i love that i love that this show is playing with those things um and what pmc was saying yeah a, a showdown with prospera and between prospera and Suleta, uh it seems inevitable not only from the hero villain angle but the writing is already demonstrated in big ways with uh, Ghoul and Vim and Miorne and Delling that children facing their parents eye to eye as vulnerable people, not looking up at this towering figure above them, is key to the show. And we have taken a few steps with Prospera and Suleta, mostly in showing the audience just the horrors of it and how far Prospera has gone to manipulate Suleta, but they haven't faced each other. And that's that's going to be painful to see Prospera be demystified in Suleta's eyes and with the audience. 
my Gundam brain just wonders how dramatic they're going to play it. Um, will Suleta or will Prospera get an evil Gundam? Will they face off that way? <laughs> the true sequel to the Epion <laughs> that we've all been waiting for. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking as we're making all these predictions, I'm thinking to myself, what if podcasting was a medium for decades and a bunch of Mecha fans getting together in between, I don't know, Gundam Seed and Gundam Seed Destiny and projecting their thoughts into the future or Code Geass and R2 or even Double O, something like that. Not to uh, shame all the se- those second seasons, but I'm we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but I'm curious how wild a ride we're in for, which is going to make for some good social media content either way. I, one one thing that's really struck me, and I've mentioned it a few times, is the scale is so it's so much smaller than the usual Gundam series. We're not hit over the head with a dozen new characters in the first episode, and all the particulars of a big war and mobile suit development, and just so many proper nouns to parse through. And then we have to figure out the on the ground relationships. That's all. Stuff floating around on the periphery that occasionally intrudes on their stories, but it's not something we necessarily have to be actively jug- juggling constantly. And I think that's that's a really strong point in favor of G-Witch, because I think Gundam has definitely struggled with that in the past. Uh, maybe this is colored by uh, Seed and Seed Destiny being the most recent series I've been through, and not to go into those too far, but they... Apologies. <laughs> They certainly struggle with balancing everything that in ways that G-Witch very consciously, I think, is avoiding. There's a, an element of, and the premise of G-Witch, in a sense, is about the court politics among the younger generation of the, you know, the people who've been elevated by the spatial sort of uh, capitalist system, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, to 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 be the kind of princes and princesses of of the the Benerit group, and there are things you could hesitate over about that choice, but it does make it much easier to to tell a story which has broader connections and 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 reaches out into its world, but doesn't require you to to sort of have that sense of like here are here are five factions, here are the important people you need to know from each of these five factions in five different places. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. So, so maybe that you know that's one advantage of the the kind of court politics sort of setting of the first season. We'll see whether that that continues. And I, I remember when I was on for what was it, episode two? Uh, you guys were looking at the website and looking at all the different companies and stuff. And I was kind of avoiding that because I was just like, let the show tell me. I don't need. I don't want to have a notepad here with like the Benerit Group and a bunch of lines going everywhere. And I think the show really successfully crafted that landmark or that landscape that I understand it now, but I don't really feel like I need to be consulting notes to figure out this person represents this company and this company is vying for favor in this larger context. Like, I think the show has done really well. That's the healthy perspective. I'm too much of a, we're all mecha sickos here, (laughs) but I feel like I'm so mecha podcaster brain poison that sometimes I have trouble not doing that. It's funny because I've been podcasting about mecha for years. I'm usually the one to be the first one to say, you know, I wish they cut out the excess. The idiosyncrasies are really bugging me. I want more consistency. And yet here I am, like, I think I'm getting more tomino-pilled the older I get. And then I'm I'm like, you know what? I kind of miss, I kind of miss that. So we'll see. See, it's time for you to watch g That's That's what you're saying without saying. Well, you could, you could, you could do your turn A <laughs> watch and a G-Reco watch and a brain-powered <laughs> watch at once. Um, like, uh, that, that'll be easy to manage Sh- and normal. The, we- 
<laughs> Normally, Russell, this is when we say shout outs to Russell. <laughs> So anytime we say brain power, now we have to invoke the specter of Russell. Um, but now you're actually on the podcast with us. <laughs> I had brain power thoughts, but maybe I'll leave them for next week, or maybe I will spare you. Um, Prospera is very much Baron Maximilian, and that's great. Nobody, if anybody hasn't seen brain power, you don't know what that is. Go watch brain power. <laughs> PMC, you didn't have a point there. You look like you're primed for a comment. Uh, I don't think so. I was. I I think I I had a thought and I lost it. Unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. All right, so another question I want to ask you on a more serious note is how the show has been less or less loudly about prosthetics and disability than we might have guessed from the prologue. This is something that has come up frequently in our discussions of Witch for Mercury from the first episode, from the prologue. Um, I definitely think it was less pronounced than expected given the prologue. Um, now with the first season under our belts, the prologue feels less out of place than it seemed for a long time. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of violence and discussion of uh, medical application, but a lot of that faded to the background, especially in the early episodes as we just got to know the students and the school. Um, boy, did it come roaring back in that in those final <laughs> episodes, seeing people getting juiced. <laughs> but I suspect the thoughts on mobile suits and the medical use of the technology as means of surviving in space will form something of an overarching theme across the show though not one that we're necessarily going to touch on in major ways throughout every episode. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It hasn't... The, the prologue, understandably, I think, from the prologue, we, we definitely got that sort of sense that, you know, it, it could really dig into this prosthetics stuff. It mostly hasn't. Um, it has, uh, and it's shown us, of course, in a very brief form, it has actually shown us Gundam, the company, testing... Um, prosthetics, which is kind of interesting to to bother to spend time showing that that's something that people do. Um, and the show has visually emphasized Prospera's gunned arm, not the company, but the actual gunned arm she has, the arm made of gunned, um, when she is cajoling Suleta. There are key shots of this sort, parallels to each other in episodes 8 and 12. Um, which does make me wonder, is is Prospera's other pros, uh, prosthetic in this story Suleta herself? Uh, and of course this ties into various fan theories about Suleta's age and origins. I'm, I'm not committing myself to any of those theories because the show will tell us in its own sweet time uh, what, what, what it wants to be true about those. Um, it also ties into uh, another fan theory, something... Um, uh, I've seen a few people posit and, and something touching on several the way that several Radio Free Mercury episodes have um, brought up these links to the Tempest is Suleta Caliban. Caliban's the figure in the Tempest with perhaps the most stage presence and uh, relative to absence of obvious um, point of point of comparison in in the show. I don't think there's a close one to one mapping between the Tempest and G Witch's plot. I, that's my impression so far. Um, but if eventually Prospera turns on Suleta, if it turns out that she wasn't that bothered about um, Suleta's welfare and Suleta was a uh, you know a tool for her, um, that idea might might give good mileage. But to return to prosthetics more generally, uh, one thing G Witch has not done at all, I think, is to suggest that Prospera is scary because she has a prosthetic arm. Prospera is scary and also magnetic and, and magnificent, in my view, whenever she's on screen. I think she's a really good character because she's a sort of Count of Monte Cristo figure. She's running this web of intrigue. We know that her agenda, however dubious it might have grown, began in that very sympathetic place where the prologue episode left her. So that's that's something I think we can say for the show is that it has... Um, uh, it has stepped quite carefully around some of the worst things it could have done um, 
with its featuring of, of characters with, with prosthetics. Yeah, we talk often about the origins of Gundam and the influence of Star Wars, but this is something that G-Witch has done well compared to even Star Wars up until the present. Um, so I think that is a credit to the animators and the writers and creators of Witch for Mercury. I brought this up a lot in previous Radio Free Mercury episodes, I think with Maddie last, and my opinions haven't changed. I need I need more context, I need more episodes to come to a more a firmer conclusion. Because like with so many things, I'm split on this issue regarding G-Witch, and perhaps that's because of my biases towards Okuchi. I don't think the show has done anything too meaningful with prosthetics and disability other than represent it responsibly on screen, which I think is a, is an honest and true achievement. For me, it's more a plot conceit right now than a thematic concern. I'm always saying this about everything in my life, but I would really like the Mamoru Oshi version of G-Witch, one that explores how technology and humanity collide and congeal in beneficial, destructive, interesting, and inescapable ways. There are ways in which the gun format or the research that went into developing the gun format has materially improved people's lives. I want that perspective because as is, all we have is the Bennerit talking heads decrying the mortality rate of the gun format, which, to be fair, is a valid concern. But I want to hear from other people. What does Prospera think about this? Or anything, for that matter. I would really like a, a Prospera-themed or framed episode. Also, what's Dr. Cardo up to? We all know she's not dead. Uh, also speaking to the, the limitations of, of potentially only 12 more episodes. So I have reservations about that. I have reservations that G-Witch can interrogate these topics without falling prey to stereotypes, but I am, I'm optimistic considering the trajectory of these 12 episodes so far. Of course, my brand is a little poisoned because the second season historically in these shows are what is when things usually go off the rails, so I, I, I do have some reservations. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Mamoru Oshii. Uh, he, he was apparently approached to run one episode of Gundam 0080, uh, but turned it down. Uh, this story comes from an interview with Kenji Uchida, 0080's producer. Perhaps he's not that interested in, in Gundam in general, um, although in a 2020 interview he talked about how engaging he found Char's counterattack. I think he's familiar with the, the opening titles of the, the UC. So who knows? It's an interesting thing to speculate about. Maybe Stephen... I would love to see Oshii tackle <laughs> like, like, like a UC stuff far into the future, like the really cosmic mm. shit. That mm. would be dope. Yeah, Gaia, Mamoru Oshii's Gaia gear. There's a, there's a thought for you. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe Stephen's observation gets us uh, somewhere more precise about what G Witch has been up to thematically. If we're, if we're saying it hasn't been really exploring the the prosthesis, um, if anything, perhaps Thunderbolt and Iron Blooded Orphans traffic more in ideas about human machine interfaces and about prosthetics. With those uh, as points of comparison, uh, we might ask what different thing is G-Witch about? Um, of course, no show talks about just one thing that we could summarize neatly. Um, that's what philosophy textbooks do, uh, not anime. Um, human creativity has fudgy edge fuzzy edges. But here's a run at the question from me. Um, I guess I would say G-Witch has explored the treatment of people as things. Instrumentalization, if you, if you want a, a, an ugly noun for it, that seems to me to be the vein of ideas that runs through the various parent-child relationships in the Benerit Group's companies, through the growth of the tie between Suleta and Mirine, from shared interests and affect, uh, to, to, to affection and to the honesty and the closeness that they find in, in episode 11. Um, through the mystery surrounding who or, or what uh, is in Ariel, and towards Suleta's seeming loss of self and Prospera's use of Suleta in um, episode 12. Uh, but, but what do you guys think? 
Yeah, I think there's um there's like a question here. I'm trying to like search for sort of what maybe what noun instrumentalization. I think is is a is a, <laughs> a mouthful, but but perhaps appropriate in terms of asking the. There's a sort of like is is thing necessarily good or bad question, and we can insert I think a bunch of things into that parent child relationships. The technology of gunned often is brought up, you know, in the context of the is it medical tech or is it war? Uh, certainly, sort of the 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 question around uh, we, uh, you know, the question of the effect of gunned on the user of it. Um, yeah, I, I think there's certainly a lot of unknown information in terms of Delling's history with the gunned format, what Prospera has been doing with the technology that will inform our answers to these questions. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, trying to arrive at a question right now is is a, a good thing. I'm not sure, you know, with, with those mysteries lurking, I, I can necessarily uh, uh, predict uh, an answer or even, you know, the appropriate question. Uh, just to circle back to the, the IBO thing real quick, you know, in terms of talking about, you know, human-machine interfaces, because I do love talking about interfaces. Uh, it's certainly, I think, been interesting. It would be interesting to run down a comparison of... Uh, you know, uh, Mikazuki's sort of loss of, uh, you know, independence, you know, in identity from the Gundam and to compare that to whatever we're going to witness with uh, Suleta and Ariel going forward. Because I, I think I, I saw a lot of theories generally about the effect that Ariel had on Suleta in terms of like, did Suleta not react to the blood because Ariel literally shielded uh, you know, Suleta from like witnessing the carnage or something that, and it's one fan theory, obviously that, that could not be what happened, but I think, you know, we might end up having a comparison very similar when it comes to those, you know, the, the, the Mikazuki Barbatos and Suleta Ariel relationships. So I think that's also like a really uh, rich thing to look into uh, going forward. Um, I'm really interested. I don't think we have enough on the table right now to say, anything concrete about how it's going to deal with prosthetics in the long run. I will be interested to see how it lines up with Thunderbolt or if it contrasts with it. Uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans is kind of headed towards the periphery of my memory at this point, but Thunderbolt is very much still there. I'm enjoying reading the volumes as they hit, and I think Odagaki is doing a good job of depicting the prosthetics and how people deal with them without demonizing them or anything. He definitely explores the anxieties of it, and broadly, it's very much about how war chews people up and about how these militarist factions, uh, the Earth Federation and currently the Nanyang Alliance, are all too willing to exploit that, to turn them into weapons, uh, people directly sacrificing themselves to those weapons. On the other side of Daryl, who has lost all four of his limbs. Uh, Eo hasn't lost anything, but it very much speaks to him sacrificing his soul just to become this monster in battle. Um, I have some issues with Thunderbolt going off and on about what any of this means. It'll oftentimes just forget about it for like seemingly a year or two, but I'm really interested to see how these two works uh, sit in conversation with each other if they do at all. Um, but more broadly... If I had to take a stab at what The Witch for Mercury is is really going for, or the main thrust of it, I do think adolescence and these parent-child relationships are the through line that everything else is going to feed into, 
and ultimately nurture, which I think might disappoint some people. I think it will kind of have a few undercooked elements to it. But I think just kids being able to look at their parents, understand uh, certainly the mistakes that they've made and be able to process that and stand next to them and look them in the eye and be able to face them is going to be the big one. Um, it's going to tie in, I think, with the robot bodies and how they relate to just surviving in space. That would be how I would very um, broadly characterize it at this halfway point now. We could always be wrong, and, you know, in a couple months we'll be sitting here head head in our hands, just being like, oh, no, whoops. That's, um, yeah, I could well believe that, and if that that is where the show lands... um, that will in some ways be thematically quite true to a lot of Gundam traditions, even as the show has in other ways felt, you know, like it's moving in other directions. So that'd be very interesting. And also this ties in with brain powered. <laughs> Shout out to Russell. <laughs> but you can't tell me I'm wrong until you watch all 26 episodes brain powered. And then I've already won. I'll be right there. Once disco tech releases, <laughs> you that play, um, you play super you. robot wars. J as well. That, that has brain powered. in. Mm. Oh, <laughs> those mecha designs are so sick. <laughs> Actually, some, there might be a clear pipeline or through line from G, Witch to Thunderbolt, just because it's being aired in Japan now or soonish, right? They're re-editing mm. the second part of the OVA or the whole OVA. Yeah. There's only two and a half hours of Thunderbolt animation. I might be being very generous with that. Those movies are on the shorter end and there's only two of them. And yeah, they're being cut up and aired. I think currently because I follow Odagaki and he's been uh, retweeting a bunch of stuff from that. I think they like just hit the airwaves. That's right, I think. Yeah, I, mm. I think it's about two hours. I, I know um, December Sky is is an hour, more or less flat, maybe maybe an hour and five, hour and ten. Um uh, they they've taken Hathaway and and Thunderbolt and and kind of cut them into bits is my understanding and, and um, uh, very very different experience to watching The Witch from Mercury but yeah I'm curious like you have a young Japanese anime aficionado watched his first gun their first Gundam show Witch from Mercury and now are jumping to Hathaway's Flash or <laughs> Thunderbolt I'm curious what their experience is like you have to imagine that someone somewhere you know after the last bit of which for Mercury aired, which was, of course, Suleta mm. with the smashing, that now we are seeing that in a different sense where these films and OVAs are being smashed into television slots. <laughs> <laughs> Printing money. Or maybe not. So for our next part, we want to revisit some topics from the our full slate of Radio Free Mercury episodes um, thus far, all 12 episodes. I mean, one of the joys, speaking as someone who pitched this idea to PMC as a creative project, is getting to chat with a new person each week without the benefit or baggage of hindsight and reacting in the moment, or basically in the moment, to a still fresh episode of Gundam. And I want to return to some of those takes. So, Russell, in particular, were there things you brought up when you guested on Radio Free Mercury that you'd like to revisit, reemphasize, or reassess? Um, I think the biggest thrust, because I was on episode this for the second episode, um, counting from the premiere, not the prologue. I think I overestimated the Utena impression. Um, it was certainly mm. strong in those episodes, but it does not. The farther it's gone along, it is not directly mapped onto it, which I, I'm actually glad for. I don't want to just revisit Utena with robots. I'm glad that it used that as a jumping-off point for some of the characters and. 
Uh, certainly some of the shot composition and themes are still there, but it's not so overtly Utena as it was in those early episodes. I'm curious, Stephen, have you kept up with Utena? I know you said you started it when we recorded. Have you made it? Have you made any distance in that? I have every hope to continue. <laughs> Alas, I have fallen behind, as I have fallen behind on almost every show. Uh, um, but it's my intention to return to it, probably over the summer. It's it's that, Twin Peaks, and the back half of Deep Space Nine, <laughs> which is a, a, a monumental undertaking. But that's what's sitting on my big backlog. <laughs> we're, we're just going to eventually have to do like a no robots episode and just talk about that third season of Twin Peaks for like <laughs> that's 15 true. hours. That's true. And I could definitely pull from our... Um, regular rotation of guests for that. Definitely, I feel like there's a pre- Rex will be thrilled. Yeah, I feel like there's a decent crossover of like weird robot people and David Lynch people. <laughs> <laughs> now, something at issue in several discussions, but very clearly articulated in Radio Free Mercury's coverage of Episode Nine with Adam, has been where the show ends up thematically in addressing its hyper-competitive world of corporate rule, which brings up a few questions. Number one, do we just need to change the people? Number two, do we need better companies? Or number three, does the whole system need to change? Um, this, if you've ever been online when people are talking about Shara's counterattack, you've you've been in the ma- the maelstrom, as it were. Um, but you've experienced these conversations before, so it's a it applies to Gundam definitely. I everybody's just sort of making a face when you say that. I don't know where things are going to land on this. My brain goes in so many different directions, some of them hopeful, uh, some of them uh, fearful of how it's going to handle this. I've seen this as the biggest potential pitfall since the beginning, and that has only grown since now the kids are in the war machine and medical business, Uh, both fields that are not necessarily known for being particularly ethical. Yeah, I definitely I, I'm like really worried that the the conflict between Silet and Prospera that we are all predicting will be resolved by like, hey mom, use the technology for peace or or also hey my not actually mom or you know, whatever it ends up being. But the point being that, you know, it's going to be something along those lines, which would be which would be a you know, just change the people or, or just change uh, the minds, I guess, uh, approach. And of course I you know Naturally, we're chopping at the bit for a uh, uh, something, some version uh, of a of a, a systemic change, you know, which which feels appropriate given the like the I every time I open my Witch for Mercury notes, I on the front page of my Witch for Mercury notes in OneNote is the uh, screen capture of the list of cable news topics from the prologue. <laughs> <laughs> the like oh, yeah. yeah like what are what issues are important to earthians and spacians and uh so like i think about that every every time i'm like yeah i want to know what issues are important <laughs> so i don't know I, i'm definitely uh, similarly fearful yeah and I, I i wouldn't expect too much orthodox anglosphere leftism um from from gwitch at, at least and gundam can have its moments of radical thought partly because Termino is really weird um, and lives a life kind of orthogonal to, to, to the rest of humanity. Um, uh, I, I'm skeptical when we find that things we like magically line up with our sense of the world. So, um, you know, I might actually wind up being... One part of me will, will feel easier if I disagree with Gwitch's conclusion. I mean, 
quite a lot of me thinks, and this is obviously the sort of thing you think if you study poetry written by people who, who regard you personally, or who would regard you personally as a dangerous menace, because um, I wouldn't live very long in the 14th century, I can tell you that. Um, and I hesitate before yoking my politics too closely to my aesthetic judgments. Um, I think the politics are too important for that. Um, uh, but that's a separate question from enjoyment. And if the concluding idea of the show is that the the Benerit group, but with Marine Marine in charge, is is you know fine and good, I'm probably not going to enjoy the ending um, as much as I might have otherwise. Um, so yeah, this is is tricky territory. I, I would say, equally, there have been um, two. I suppose two moments in the show so far, probably others, but two that really stick out for a quiet um, but present, you know, a willingness to, to, to provoke. One which we'll return to next episode is um, on Japanese television, bearing in mind the rules, the laws, rather, the laws around um, uh, you, you cannot legally, in terms of national law, um, uh, have a, a gay marriage in Japan is is having a character at the end of the first episode of an early evening show with Gundam in the title say women marrying women is perfectly normal um, and the other is is the uh, protest scene um, where I mean uh, it's uh, it's not entirely clear exactly what the show thinks but there's obviously there's a willingness there to to um, be quite explicit about some of the critiques that the Earthians have uh, of the situation they're in. My concerns on this are pretty well documented, so I won't belabor my points too much. In our conversation with Adam, I made an offhand comment about the end of Code Geass and how dissatisfied I was with what I viewed as an indifferent restitution of the status quo. Um, it, it was a very offhand comment, and I got some pushback online, which is understandable. Um, in, in a conversation, sometimes you just like to stir the pot a bit, and I apologize for that. But I've been thinking about it uh, since then. And so in Code Geass, I mentioned there's an, I've, what I find is an indifferent restitution of the status quo. Compare this to UC Gundam, especially Zeta and Shara's counterattack, which frames the return to the status quo as tragic. But that's the point. Tomino had something there to say. I don't think there was I don't think the writers of Code Geass had that intentionality behind it. I think they kind of like backed into the ending. For the uninformed, in Code Geass, there's an imperial power, Britannia, that has colonized and brutally subjugated another country, Japan. Now, Code Geass shows in explicit detail, sometimes in photographic detail, how merciless Britannia is. And it positions itself, at least in the first season, as having capital T thoughts about this. But as the show progresses, it becomes clear that the plight of the oppressed Japanese and the efficacy of revolution isn't the focal point. Rather, the dramatic rise and the tragic fall of the characters are, which isn't necessarily a problem. The writers use the Japanese much like Britannia does as props without the reflection necessary for a compelling commentary. For me, at least, I know some people feel differently. Without this devolving into a full-blown examination of Code Geass's ending, trust me, I'm holding back a lot of thoughts here, I worry that G-Witch might fall into this mode, that it's going to talk the talk, so to speak, using the language of revolution, space capitalism kills, without actually doing anything interesting with it. I don't need the revolution to actually happen necessarily, or I don't need to take it for the show to take a stringent and strictly narrow definition of leftism and like promote that. But Unlike Code Geass, I actually like the characters here. I'm invested in their struggles and care about their well-being. So a superficial gloss of corporate rule and hypercapitalism wouldn't be egregious for me. In fact, that's honestly what I'm expecting. 
And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily need to agree with a work's politics to enjoy it. It usually happens for that to be the case, but not always. And usually, the politics are a little lukewarm to how I personally feel. Like, take The Last of Us, for example, the game or the show. Like, I disagree with the show's general perspective on self-preservation and communal strength in the wake of an apocalyptic event, but the storytelling and characters are compelling, which is why I'm still watching and enjoying it. So for what it's worth, I think Gwitch's heart is in the right place, it's empathetic, it challenges abusive power structures rather than prop them up. At the end of the day, that's the bar I needed to clear. Once cleared, I will find enjoyment one way or the other if I enjoy the characters and the struggle, uh, you know, I enjoy seeing how they cope with existence and where they, how they interact with one another. I think since we're talking about Code Geass, seemingly we, we always have to talk about Code Geass. The, the specter of Code Geass is so... I hope pervasive. Russell incurs the ire of Code Geass fans this time and not uh, Every me. time I talk about Code Geass, somebody eventually shows up and yells at me. I think the difference here is, obviously both written by Okochi, Code Geass spent a lot of time depicting that stuff. It, As you said, it talked the talk. It made a huge deal about the colonization, the brutality of Britannia. Many of those early episodes were focused on all of those atrocities. Uh, they were clearing out the ghetto in, what was that the first episode? Like they, mm. they, they underlined all of those ideas in major ways. Whereas I, we can maybe see this as Okochi learning some lessons in the ensuing uh, decade and a half. A lot of that is still on the fringes. I think it definitely says something that we still don't really know where it sits on a lot of these issues, other than a few screen caps on a newsreel. We, because it's just seemingly the focus has been elsewhere on these characters in the school. These are definitely ideas in its mind, but I, if it did just focus on these characters and somebody eventually becoming a CEO, which I think would be disappointing. I don't think it would be as big of a betrayal as that second season of Code Geass was, where the plight of the Japanese was pushed aside and just turned into fuel for these larger-than-life characters to pose in their robots and shoot nukes at each other. Obviously, we're sitting now at the halfway point of a Gundam show going into its second season, so boy, could we look terrible soon. <laughs> That's that's the benefit, though, of not having four core, though, is you have more room to make those mistakes. So that speaks to the strength of a 26-episode season, or the, the potential positives of a 26-episode season. But I at, least, I at least don't see The Witch from Mercury making those points no, anywhere close to as loudly as Code Geass did. I agree. I, Okuchi fans get annoyed with me because I haven't seen enough Okuchi stuff, so I always have to default to the Code Geass comparison. Um, but I'm working my way to the... Th to the Turn Egg Okuchi episodes, and I'll eventually check out something else he's worked on. I, I actually haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff either. I'm really only thinking of... Oh, no, he did, uh, like, Devilman Crybaby. Uh, yeah. This is the part... I know Planetus through Osmosis, but not um, on an episode-to-episode -episode basis. I think Planetus... One thing, oh, I said, one, thi one thing I said in our prologue episode, which I think I would stand by, is that I see Okuchi as... Um, more of a journeyman writer than than some people and i think he, he does have a style and we it, it is on display in g which i'm not sure that there's necessarily um uh as much consistency to to his projects as as people sometimes say um uh i think um uh that's my view and, and i i 
continue to think that, I think, based on, 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 on Gwitch. But again, as you say, we're halfway through. Or maybe, fingers crossed, if we're very lucky, we might be a quarter of the way through. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Jury's out. Speaking of something else that has been talked about a lot online, Renata discussing episode 7 highlighted melodrama as the way she's understanding the show's tone and style. Tom used the word in a Radio Free Mercury episode uh, during our coverage of episode 12, too. And the question I want to ask all of you, is this useful? How does each of us think the show's models, characters, interiority, drama, plot development, how does this mesh with this idea of melodrama? Yeah, yeah, I know. Maybe I would use the word melodrama. I was going to say I wouldn't use the word melodrama. Maybe I would. I think Renata was putting her finger on a really important thing. And she pointed to things that were practical, like uh, in episode seven, um, how, uh, you know, how is it that the lighting is set up so pale technologies can have this kind of very theatrical lighting for their accusation of Siletta? Well, this is probably not the question to be asking because the point is that the show is giving us this kind of very, very dramatized presentation. The show isn't concerned about the kind of nailed down realism. Um, uh, and I'd agree with that. I think Gee Witch isn't that interested in sort of realist... Um, the realist plotting of characters with the kind of deep interior interiority um uh and and i you know that's the grounds on which i think i would defend some of the show's decisions like for example um Gule killing his father in episode 12 um which yes is ridiculous um i mean it, it is patently ludicrous that that um you know Gyul, through a, a horrifying series of coincidences having you know left home and so on um would wind up facing his father um both piloting um uh Jeturk mobile suits that he would kill him um but the the point is that um it's, uh, you know, we, and the show is explicit about this. It gives us Gule thinking about Suleta in the middle of the fight. It's paralleling the way that he sees Suleta modelling her relationship with her parents, which is, also, which is also at issue in episode 12. I think it's really productive. And I don't mind it being ludicrous because stories, in my view, often ought to be ludicrous. Um, uh, it, it, it is also stupid that Oedipus meets Laius and, and has a quarrel with him and kills him. And we accept that because it's a really good story um and i i, I would would cautiously make the same argument for um for g which i think um uh you know the realist novel is a perfectly fine thing i was dipping into middlemarch the other day it's a very good book um but um it's a fairly recent thing and there's a much longer tradition in many human cultures in japan as in many other places of of stories which are um you know more exteriorized and and don't necessarily go for that kind of deep interior interiority and i would i would defend that in g which i think is quite it's one of the aspects of the show that i quite enjoyed um it makes the moment to moment texture of the show quite strong quite fun uh, and it suits it suits a, an action drama show for the early evening and a, and a broad audience. So that's that's how I think about this. Um, but uh, yeah, have at it. What what do you guys think? Yeah, I think the sort of heightened nature of the emotional stakes is pretty vital to G Witch's success. Uh, a fear that I have with modern storytelling is when there is an overemphasis of the puzzle box to the point that it interferes with characterization. Uh, I was reminded of this because I was editing a lot of uh, 13 Sentinels discussion, which is a major criticism I have of that being a known uh, 13 Sentinels hater. 
I'm so glad I have you talking about this now because Thal's on the pod and we're going to take you behind the shed and beat you up. No, I, I, it's completely understandable that someone mm-hmm. might have that reaction to 13 Sentinels. Yeah, yeah. And so what I'm saying is I think Gwitch has avoided this because uh, when I think about, for example, the uh, relationship of uh, Suleta and Mirin, even the wildest theories of like, who is Saleta actually, or what's inside the aerial, it would not change uh, the emotional arc or core that exists, uh, you know, with, with those characters. And I think that sort of uh, persistence of that, you know, of those emotions over and above the example that Thal put forth with what's going on with Ghoul and Vim, I think is, is kind of similar. The, uh, you know, the emotional drama uh, exists and you know, sort of perseveres even through uh, you know unlikely events. You know it, it is that compelling. Uh, so I think you know I, I guess in my mind I have that as melodramatic, and I think that is a reason that it, it works in, in a way that other mysteries have hamstrung stories for me. In fact, that's a good point you make there because if we think about the the real peaks of the show's climax so far. Um, th- those are probably uh, the um, the kind of reconciliation between Mirena and Saleta in episode seven. Uh, sorry, eleven. Episode eleven. Seven eleven. There you go. Episode eleven. Uh, and um, uh, and Mirena accusing Saleta at the end of episode twelve. And those neither of those is like a big puzzle box reveal. Aha! You know this was the thing that was in the aerial. Both of those are really really strong moments because it's all about the the closeness and the distance and and uh between those two characters uh, so yeah i think that that the, you, you make a good case so I, w- I was sitting on this note all day because i'm not entirely in love with the idea of calling witch for mercury a melodrama from an academic sense or stance but then i literally spent hours thinking about this i couldn't come up with a word that's better i, I was coming up with academic jargon like the intersection of pointed satire and dot, dot, dots, and there's nonsense. I always had none of it. Um, and I was thinking about the origins of the word melodrama and how I view it and how, like, other people view it. Like, much like bourgeoisie, for example. If you talk, if you ask my students what bourgeoisie means, they'll say, oh, you mean bougie? Yeah, that means affluent, that means prosperous. Someone might say middle class. And like bourgeoisie, melodrama has become kind of a catch-all term. It depends who you're talking to. Uh, They'll use it differently, which I know applies to all words, but I feel like there's a very academic definition of melodrama and a very academic definition of bourgeoisie, for example, and a more general definition. I don't think it's an inappropriate descriptor, but I also don't think it completely captures what G-Witch is doing. Melodrama, to me at least, and when I think of melodrama, I think of like the romance, the early 19th century romances, County Monte Cristo. I think of Douglas Sirk films from the 1950s. I think of soap operas, for instance, daytime television. All these things suggest, and this is not a criticism, I do like my fair share of romance, uh, but they suggest a mawkish sentimentality and sensationalism that G-Witch doesn't always fully lead into. It does, but not fully and not all the time. I think the on-screen character work is more grounded than not. G-Witch is concerned with class, for example, and its characters speak and interact in ways that are appropriate to their socioeconomic origins, which isn't always the case with melodrama. Sometimes if you're reading a romance, all the characters talk the same, this elevated diction. For example, I teach The Scarlet Letter, and all the characters, no matter age, socio-political background or affiliations, they all speak the same. Also consider that reference is made to Suleta's Mercurian dialect, and there's a clear difference between how Earthian and Spatian students behave. And furthermore, and this was alluded to earlier, there are a lot of quiet moments, usually between Miri and Suleta, 
that the show chooses not to sensationalize, even choosing to omit an accompanying musical score, which is, I think is the real indicator. Because when I think of romances, when I think of summer blockbuster films that are operate at a heightened emotional level, like rom-coms, for example, not that a rom-com is a summer blockbuster, but you get what I'm saying here. There's a there's usually a very dramatic emotional score to emphasize those dramatic beats, and that's not present all the time in Witch from Mercury. Now, some may argue I'm splitting hairs and relying on too precise an interpretation of melodrama. Like, don't get me wrong, G-Witch is theatrical, Shakespearean at times, and its politics are satirical, but I think the character work is a little more nuanced and situated than some people have given it credit for. The characters are given space to breathe, and be themselves without the need to elicit an emotional response from the audience. To put it perhaps more simply in mecha terms, G-Witch is not G-Gundam, and that's not a criticism of either show, but I would consider G-Gundam peak melodrama, and I would consider G-Witch like a few notches below that, if you were trying to measure this quantitatively on a spectrum. If if G-Witch was G-Gundam, Choo Choo would be the the protagonist, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Steven, so I know you, you tried to find a descriptor for this. Uh, there is absolutely no academic basis for it, but I think we're all a little too online to avoid it. Um, G-Witch is distinctly anime in the, in its depiction of emotions, uh, the heightened quality of it. I too try to avoid melodrama because it is often too loaded and even just using it with someone else, you then have to back up and define how you're using it. And it just becomes such a thorny issue. I just It's just not part of my dictionary, generally. Um, G-Witch certainly trades in its big moments and theatricality. Um, invoking both Utena and The Tempest are certainly not haphazard. Uh, zero people would ever say that Kunihiku Ikuhara's work is grounded and natural. Um, it's big, it's loud, there's usually a song screaming at you about fossils and stuff. As a side note, I would not complain if we got a J.A. Caesar song to one of these robot duels. That would certainly be something. Um, but it's definitely theatrical. Um, the first that comes to mind is Prospera, who is very much aware that she's putting on a performance in her life, uh, both as a caring mother and then as this arch villain. Um, she's easily the most theatrical part of the show. She, the way she's lit, the way her actress, who is escaping me at this moment, performs her lines, like that is very, that that is the closest thing to something that you'd see on stage, I think. But uh, like the big colors, I think about the, uh, especially the first duels with Ghoul, where he has the big plume and everything, that is, that is just very silly, it's very anime, but it gets the point across very clearly you understand his character and the position in the world he is attempting to occupy um i think that's all great but then yeah you get these quiet moments where the music shuts off and we just we zoom in on their faces we listen to them breathing and just barely getting out their lines i'm glad the show can work in these different modes that it can go big it can go quiet i'm excited to see where it goes from here especially as it seems like the story is going to escalate uh, I I like your idea of using anime as that descriptor because that's something that's like baked into all our bones and we know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. If I had to write it in an article, it would be anime but in italics or on Twitter, <laughs> anime but with asterisks. I think I, we have... Oh, sorry. Well, just to, just to add, um, some of the very theatrical and dramatic elements are um, 
So the the jewels, for example, are self-evidently very silly. And there are characters in the show who say, <laughs> like, this is stupid, <laughs> um, including Vim to Turk in the first episode. Um, so the one <laughs> of the things the show is doing is, is in the background, the show is showing us that it too knows the jewels are stupid. That, and a minor point the show is making is that it's stupid and wasteful that the Benerit group has this system in which the hand of the daughter of the founder is being competed for by these. So the... Um, uh, uh, so some of the theatrical elements, I suppose, you, the, you, I think you, it's a, you're right to pick those out because actually the show itself is staging the staginess of those of those elements, if that if if that makes sense. Which isn't to say that I mean maybe there's a a landing point for the end of the series in which Gule, as a reformed character, is able to duel people for fun in some kind of athletic form of of mobile suit competition. Um, uh, um, but uh, yeah, that 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 theatricality is actually staged within the show, which I think is is um, displays a kind of awareness of the difference between leaning fully into that and and dialing it up and down. I, that's very much an element of uh, Kunihiko Ikohara's work too. Is there's absurdity to it, and it regularly underlines that absurdity with a big smile. So I'm glad that it's invoke directly invoking Utena without necessarily needing us to to see it, to map anything, but to just have that being a touch-off point is is a lot of fun to see in Gundam. That's a very good point, actually, yes, because in Utena 2, it's often, we're often shown that the things we're seeing are themselves partly staged and manipulated, and yes, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to touch on PMC's uh, thoughts on the mystery box again, because I think that was a really good point. The show has given me a lot of confidence that it's not going to pull the rug out from under us and invalidate what we've already seen. I don't fear that uh, Suleta and Miorne's relationship is going to be turned upside down in the name of a twist because Suleta has been hypnotized or something to do a bunch of really specific stuff. I don't think the writing is that cheap. I think it is being very honest with how it wants to depict these ideas and these characters there's definitely going to be some twists, but I don't feel like the show is setting us up for a big gotcha just to say, ah, it was all a ruse. None of it means anything. It didn't that blow your mind. God, I hope that would be really disappointing if, yeah, we get to episode 26 and whoops, never mind. Turns out that was the case. I'm predicting the title of Radio Free Mercury episode 23 titled Mea Culpa, where we start very <laughs> like stone faced and serious. We were, we were wrong. No, but I, I share that optimism, Russell. Uh, hopefully, it we do it, the show does right by us and its audience. All right, so like I said at the start of the episode, we're going to be splitting this up into two parts, uh, mainly to let, like G-Witch does and lets its characters breathe, we want to let our conversation breathe as well. And we have a lot we want to talk about next time. So remember, this: if you enjoyed this conversation, do not fret, do not worry. There is more to it, which will be dropping next week. Some things we're going to talk about next week is we're going to talk about the animation. We're going to talk about Witch for Mercury as a gay story. We're going to talk about the show's affection for Universal Century Gundam, its links to other non-Gundam titles, what we liked and didn't like overall. Hopefully we'll talk about the dub. I haven't watched it yet, but I hope to this week. I think we will, by that point, by the record time, we'll have four dubbed episodes, maybe five. I know they pushed back some of it. Is that counting for it because of the ice storm in Texas? Oh, I didn't even know about that. I'm not sure how much they push back or how much they have banked right now, but I know there was a slight delay. 
Gotcha. So there'll at least be a few episodes, Dub, that we'll be able to talk about. And we'll talk about whether our fears for the future, our hopes for the future, and we'll try as best we can with what limited time sight we've, hindsight we've had to assess G-Witch Core 1. So thank you both for joining us for an extended discussion today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so always. much for having me. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, 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 that's fine. It's, uh, um, uh, yeah, a, d- a delight as always to, to have the chance to talk. So, Thal, where where can the good people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, uh, so so long as Twitter lasts in the in the land of mortal flesh. Um, uh, that's uh, at uh, Thaliarchus, T H A L uh, I A R C H U S, uh, and you can find my uh, evolving giant robot epic poem on itch.io. Um, it's called Cosmic Warlord Kinbright, and that's K I N. B-R-I-G-H-T. Um, my username on, on itch is also Thaliarchus. Um, if you like epic poetry, if you don't know that you like epic poetry, but you might, go and give it a try. And I'm, I'm Russell Latshaw. You can find me on Twitter at Russell Latshaw. I occasionally post my thoughts on Space Kaleidoscope when I am not exhausted <laughs> and can actually think straight. Got a few ideas in mind, but uh, yeah, if you want to yell at me about any of my terrible opinions... Uh, heard here, please hit me up. <laughs> and now if you want to get links for any of the items that Thal and Russell just mentioned, you can find those in the show notes. In terms of upcoming stuff and what you can do to support Giant Robot FM, as always, you can support us by leaving a nice written review on your favorite podcasting service of choice. You can support us directly on our Patreon at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. We've got a few things going on right now. While we are waiting for the return of Radio Free Mercury and the return of Mobile Suit Gundam The Witch Mercury, we're running a series on our bonus podcast feed called Moonrace Wireless, where twice a month we are talking through an episode of Turn A Gundam with various guests. We also have another simulator episode coming up soon for those interested in mecha video games. Specifically, we'll be focusing on the 1999 From Software game Frame Gride. Uh, if you're interested in what we do with Simulator, I encourage you to check out the Armored Core episodes that are available on the main feed. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel, for the music that we use. Now, Russell, I'm glad you ended this because I want to bring up a tweet you made. I'm not going to ask you to read it in accent, but I think one of your most memorable, you want to describe the meme at least, your most memorable G-Witch meme. What was the inspiration for this? Um, the They had so much fun with the translation of that one line um, in so many different languages, but it's just... it. I hope... I think PMC's got one, but I hope we... I'm really curious to see how the dub handles it, but I want to hear, like, everybody's awful Italian accents for Suleta Fagetta. Like, wonderful stuff. PMC, hit, a, hit us with your best... Italian or Brooklyn accent. Hey, Sulata, forget about it. <laughs>